You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. I, of course, am Michelle from Bolton & Company. I'm the benefit compliance leader here. Okay. Allow me to introduce Bob Radicky. He's back. He was here the first week. <laughs> He's back. We're so happy. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. I didn't scare you. I didn't scare you bad enough the first week, huh? You, you, you let me come <laughs> back for another another round. We did. We'll see how you do this time. <laughs> All right. Okay. So Bob is a principal at Benefit Comply, and Benefit Comply is is really what they do is they advise the advisors. And and so what that means is Bob knows a lot, more than me, we should say. So, so happy to have you on here. So I'm supposed what, to set expectations you, low so I can exceed them, not, you know, not, uh, <laughs> not set me up for. Uh, no, in all seriousness, right. Michelle, I want to say our relationship with you, what we bring to the table is we're focused just on these compliance issues. We spend our entire life just focused on ERISA and HIPAA and COBRA and the ACA. You and your team have to deal with a hundred different things for your clients, right? And so we're not really, I mean, thank you for saying that. We're not really any smarter than anyone else, but we get to spend a hundred percent of our time on unpacking these rules and, and helping everybody deal with them. If you, if somebody needs to talk to me about stop loss insurance, I don't know how to spell it. So, you know, the, the value I guess we bring is our focus on these, these difficult issues and, and helping, you know, your team and your clients deal with these. So thank, thanks for that though, anyway. Absolutely, yes. So what we do is that both Bob and I work with employers on a daily basis who are who want to be compliant or have questions on how to be compliant. Now when we had these practical discussions with employers. We do not give legal advice. We're not attorneys. And also note that the information that comes in can change rapidly or maybe even further clarification can come up, which we may have not have had previously. So we, we all need to stay up to date and stay on our toes. The objective of our talk today is to have a conversation that helps employers along the way. HR leaders, business owners, you know, you want that validation on what you've read, kind of that second set of eyes, and maybe even guidance where none may exist. So the hope is that this conversation provides a little bit of that validation and guidance. All right, let's review our agenda for this day. We're going to go through some updates, then we talk about the, t the key topics, and then we go into toilet paper talk. Um, this is our <laughs> weekly segment, bi-weekly segment, uh, a review of things that has become incredibly relevant, just like toilet paper. And then we wrap up with our guidance wish list. All right, a summary of updates from last week, strictly benefits today. So I want to emphasize that. So we have some highlights. We want to talk about insurance carrier premium credits, IRS notices that relax the Section 125 election changes, COBRA deadline extensions, and then this one came out not too long ago at the very bottom. The IRS announced the 2021 HSA contribution limits. There's not much to talk about here, but I wanted you to have this information as soon as possible. Since I knew I'd have a captive audience today, I just threw this information in there so you were aware that those contribution limits were out. Yeah, Michelle, you you really are piling on today with them because, I mean, these poor folks, HR managers, have been dealing so much with um, just general what's going on with the COVID-19 crisis. The last couple of mm -hmm. weeks have been 
crazy with how much stuff has been released by the regulators. So, yeah, a lot, lot to talk about, and I, I have a, a ton of empathy goes out to the human resource and benefit managers on the call because there's just so much, so much going on. Right, it, it's unbelievable. I I cannot imagine. It's it's so tough. And in fact, I think the HR teams are battling like all the return to work requirements and and issues they need to be aware of. In addition to all of the benefits um, information that's been coming out, like you said, so tons of empathy. Let's talk about these insurance carrier premium credits. If you follow the Bolton blog, you did see a blog topic come out on how to handle these premium credits because we are seeing more and more of the carriers announcing premium credits. Here in California, Governor Newsom issued a, 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 uh, an announcement essentially saying he, he expects all of the carriers need to provide rebates and refunds. But right now, we've only seen these rebates or premium credits or refunds, whatever you might want to call them, we've only seen them pertaining to dental and vision. That's what we've seen come out for now. And you can you also we've we've heard MetLife, Principal, UHC, Dental and Vision, Delta Dental in certain states, and the latest to come out is Guardian. All of those carriers have announced that they are issuing some type of premium credit. These are, full, these are for fully insured policies only. So if you have self-insured policies for dental vision, medical, you obviously you're not going to participate in a rebate or a refund because you are experiencing claims as they happen. You don't have that fixed premium cost there. So it's fully insured policies only. Hey, Michelle, can you can help me a little bit here? I, I, I've been told mm -hmm. the premium credits are coming out in, in kind of different forms. Not every carrier is doing uh, it the same. I mean, some are are saying they're gonna reduce premiums going forward. Is anybody giving actually refunds yet? I mean, what, what, what do most of them look like so far? Great question. Okay, so I haven't seen anyone say we're gonna issue a, a refund check. It's anytime Not they yet. say they're gonna yeah. do a refund, it's always a premium credit from my experience. Like it's gonna be, um, you know, maybe you wanna call it a premium holiday where your next invoice mm -hmm. might be discounted 25% to account for that kind okay. of rebate. But what I'm also seeing, and, and uh, I find this interesting, is that Guardian, for example, said, we'll give you a premium credit, or you can have a rate guarantee, or we'll throw in some benefit enhancements. So Guardian gave their oh, employer group an, uh, yeah, an option. They're saying, okay, which one do you want? We've given you three options. So it, 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 it will be, you know, so it definitely make sure that if those listeners on the line, make sure that you are, you know exactly how this premium credit is coming or being delivered and in what, what mechanism. Is it a rate guarantee? Is it, you know, is it a premium credit? Right, right. And here's the tough one, Bob, and I, we've talked about this before. And in fact, we're familiar with this because of the MLR rebate. So premium right. credits have have to be treated in a similar fashion as the MLR rebates. With some, some employers are used to that. They understand what we're saying right now, but some just have never had to deal with an MLR rebate or have, just have not because of their group size or any of those factors. So this, this will be new for those employers. And, and, and let me give a little background to why we care, right? Um, uh, and this might help people understand what's going on here. When, when you're getting a refund in the MLR or a premium credit, 
you got to remember that 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 the cost of that plan was paid for partially by you, the employer, typically, and partially by the employees, right? Most of you have employees pay at least part of the premium, and under under ERISA, those premiums that the employees pay their portion are are considered plan assets. Now we don't have to hold them in trust or anything to, for typical health plans, but but they still are plan assets that matter. And and ERISA has all kinds of rules. You got to be careful about how you handle plan assets. So you just got to remember that it's under the umbrella of um, ERISA saying employers have certain things they have to follow when they're dealing with plan assets, and most of you have plan assets when you have employees paying part of your premium. So that's what puts us into the situation where if we get money back or we get credits, we can't just pocket it necessarily. Um, we, have to, we have to pay attention to the rules. I, I like that, Bob. Why do we care? Can we start off our right. conversation with why do we care? Because it's so, it's so important to know why we have to care so we can then right. make sure we follow the rules. So, and let me ask this, Bob. So if a plan is not subject to ERISA, and there are some that are out there, for example, churches, um, and they're not subject to ERISA, do they need to care about this? So, so, and again, and, and what I'll say is, in, in, since you're not subject to ERISA, you're not subject exactly to the Department of Labor rules on plan assets, but um, most employers are going to treat uh, refunds and things like that. Similarly, um, plans not subject to risk are still subject to the Public Health Services Act. Now, that doesn't have the same rules regarding plan assets, but um, when it comes to something like employee contributions, we generally tell even non-ERISA plans um, a, a good, the good practice would do follow the rules the Department of Labor gave, up, gave us for the MLA rebates for ERISA plans. And if you want to do anything differently, talk to your legal counsel and make sure that you're not um, crossing over some other rule that you shouldn't be or not following some other rule that you shouldn't be. Good to know. Okay. All right. So the, the first thing I want to get out of the way is the simple part. If your company pays 100% of the premium under whatever policy is giving you the, the premium credit, then no refund needs to be passed to participants. You can essentially Stop listening. If your company pays 100% of the premium, not just single coverage, but 100% of the employee and dependent premiums, then the re no refund needs to be passed to the participants. So you essentially, you get the check, you cash it as the employer, and you can keep it. But if your company requires a cost share, the rebate or the refund, the premium credit must be handled according to those ERISA rules to avoid a claim for breach of fiduciary duty as the plan administrator. That kind of what that, what in the, in the ERISA lens, that's what they're looking at is that fiduciary duty you have. There are some exceptions. The, the first one is that if the plan documents include language allowing the employer to keep the refund or the rebate or the dividends, sometimes those three terms are used in your SPD or your plan document. You can search for those terms. And two, Bob, we talked about number two, yeah. and this is a little bit more complex, but I, I threw it in here anyway. If the employer does not split contributions based on a percentage amount, maybe... You could. Can yep. you share your thoughts on that, Bob? Yep. Yeah. Let's let, let's talk about that. So, so here's let, let, let's paint the the obvious kind of scenario, right? You got a dental plan, and the, I'm just going to use easy math because I'm not good at math. The premium is a hundred dollars a month, just you know, whatever. And and 
typically, so commonly, employers communicate to their employees that they're going to pay a portion of that. And the employees have to be fortunate. So you see, right, employers articulating, we're going to pay 75% of the premium, $75, and you're paying 25%, $25. That's just a very common way that the plan is, is, is communicated to employees. Now, employers have a tremendous amount of flexibility in setting their contribution schemes, right? I, we don't, I don't care other than the rules the insurance company might set. You can set and change your contribution scheme any way you want. But when you articulate that you're doing it a certain way, you've, 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 made, you've, you've bound yourself to now this is how you're administering the plan and you have an obligation as a plan fiduciary to, to administer it properly. So um, what I'm afraid of is you tell your employees you're paying 75% of the premium, that premium is $100. Next month, your carrier gives you a $20 credit, let's say, but so your premium is only 80 bucks. The way you've articulated the contributions to your employees is that you're going to pay 80%, and you should continue to do that unless you formally change your contribution structure. So an employer could, we, you know, you laughed at me when I said this one, Michelle, an employer could say, hey, we're, we're getting this refund, so we're going to change our contribution scheme now, and we're going to pay a smaller percentage so that the employees have to continue to pay their $25. Technically, legally, I have no problem with you changing your contribution. From an employer relations perspective, telling the employees they got to keep paying the same and you're paying less because you got a refund might not go over so great with your HR department. Um, I'm just thinking from an employee relations perspective. <laughs> we right? don't recommend, <laughs> right? Well, but, but, but I want to make the diff I want to make the distinction between can an employer change their contributions anytime? Absolutely. I mean. Technically, right? But you also got to yeah. pay attention to not pissing off your employees, to use that you know, a very technical compliance term. So, so back <laughs> to what you're what, what you're advising, Michelle is right. You know, if you've said you're going to pay seventy five percent, our advice would be then pay seventy five percent of the lower premium, and the employee's contribution is going to go down too, right? Now, what you made the point you made was another employer might have done it differently. Another employer might have said, "Hey, employees." You have to pay fifty dollars to participate in our dental plan. Period. That's the that's the contribution. It has nothing to do with what the rates are. In fact, the rates change every year, and we've charged you fifty bucks for the last ten years, right? And if that was how I clearly articulated to our employees that that's what they pay for dental insurance, then I don't care as much. If the premium changes, you just keep charging them the fifty bucks. So it matters how you articulated to your employees how those contributions are set. Yes, yes. Um, I, it, you know, I'm kind of, I'm looking at this and I feel like from an office perspective, at the end of the day, we know that our listeners want to do right by their employees. There's mm -hmm. absolutely no doubt. Mm -hmm. Even though this doing right by your employees and, 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 and which means giving them back their portion of the rebate or the premium credit, it, it's an administrative burden, is it not? Yeah, I mean, you have to do these yeah, calculations. Yeah. Okay, how much did I pay? How much did they pay? Now I have to give them back the appropriate amount. It's an administrative burden. But, you know, doing right by your employee, you want to do the slicing and dicing. So that way you give them okay. back their portion of those premium credits. I think that at the is end the best of the way day, to do it if you can. Yep. Yes. Yep. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. 
I see a few, I see a few questions. I want to make sure that we answer any questions that are, you know, kind of uh, on point for this particular topic being the premium credits. Mm -hmm. So we have one regarding premium credits. We pay a hundred percent of a base rate employees pay the balance. So how would we figure out the credits to someone who is buying up? This mm -hmm. is the slicing and dicing part. This is where you get the math involved and you get a spreadsheet involved. Um, and you, and and yeah. you put in some formulas. <laughs> I'm not a math so expert. <laughs> the, yeah. So let me make one comment about this. The, the Department of Labor rules related to MLRs, just use that as the basis for how we make the decisions here, are clear that we don't have to make sure that each individual plan participant gets their exact percentage of whatever discount or or a refund we get. The Department of Labor thinks of this more globally. You've got plan assets, you have to share them properly with employees versus, you know, that use them. But the Department of Labor in the MLR rules even talks about a, a more general, maybe a flat credit going to all employees no matter what they had, whether it's single or family coverage, and that may be reasonable. So my point is, my point is, there, you know, you want to do it as fairly as you can for employees, but you don't want to get yourself wrapped up in knots so much that, oh, this one person had single coverage for six months and family coverage for six months, and so I should calculate the prorated re No, 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 okay? You know, um, if you're getting a refund and you just decide to adjust next month's contribution based on that, I'm not a refund, I'm sorry. If you're getting a credit next month or your premium's going down and you just decide to adjust everybody's contribution by the same percentage, and so people paying zero got zero and people paying family got the same percentage, I think that's a reasonable approach. Great somebody point asked about also reasonable what, what, approach. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Michelle, somebody asked a question. We, we, we use acronyms all the time. The MLR is the medical loss ratio. Those of you that have fully insured plans, if, you're, if your health insurance company has too good of a year and they don't have enough claims, they have to refund some of the premiums. So every year, some carriers in some parts of the country end up giving refunds back to their participants, including their group plans. That's what we're referring to as the MLR. If you're, you may never have gotten an MLR rebate if you've been with carriers that always had their rates set uh, close to what their experience is. The MLR is only, it's, it's, it was part of the Affordable Care Act so that in, uh, insurance companies can only have administrative expenses up to a certain percentage of their total premium. So if they have too good of a year, they have to give some money back. So that's what we're referring to the MLR. If you're not fully insured, you never saw it. If you're fully insured, maybe your carrier never had one. So sorry about that. And the Department of Labor released, Michelle's referring to Department of Labor released a bunch of rules on how to handle that MLR rebate if you ever get one. And that's what we're referring to. Go ahead, Michelle. Mm -hmm. All right, so I'm getting, we're getting a lot of the same, we're getting a lot of what's essentially the same question posed different ways. So I want to emphasize this, this um, one more time because I, I think it bears repeating. If your company pays 100% of the premium, the total premium, which is employee plus dependents, no refund needs to be passed to participants. If you cover 100%, yeah, it's all your money. But if you cover 100% employee only and only 50% for dependents, you do not qualify to keep all of that money. You would have to then uh, distribute the, the premium credit slash rebate slash refund. We're using all the same terms. But you have to distribute that amount you know, proportion, proportionately in a reasonable fashion as, as, 
uh, Bob said, to those that are covering their dependents. So no, the employer cannot keep 100% of the rebate in that situation. And, and so we had that same question asked a few different ways. So uh, so just know, and, and it even in buy-up situations is the same thing because you're not paying 100% of the premium in a buy-up situation. If you're paying 100% HMO, but they had to buy up to a PPO, uh, if you're getting a premium credit on the PPO plan, then you do have to distribute the the fair share in a reasonable manner. Same same way. I think someone asked, when can we expect these these premium credits? That's going to be dependent on each carrier. They're going to communicate when they are when they are when you're going to see that premium credit show up. And even some of them are giving you options, so you'll need to have a conversation with that carrier in order to to understand which option you're going to take and when it would go into effect. All right, I think we covered all the questions there. Bob, anything more to add before we move on? I don't think so. Yeah, I think we should cover the IRS rules. Okay. All right, so the uh, the IRS notices went out. I, I think it's been, oh my gosh, time is flying. Maybe it's been a week. Is that right? A week, yep. Uh, yep. A week. And this was guidance we we really have been asking for and hoping for and saying. In fact, Bob, when you were on, the very first episode we talked about this and we hmm. said and i made a joke about how uh we we were talking about how we were hoping the irs wasn't listening um yeah right uh, because you said <laughs> yeah uh, so it's funny now that we're on this we're on this call now after having gotten the guidance that we were we were hoping for most of it they, they, oh. they addressed a lot of what we were what we were looking for yep mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so we have the section the, what we're looking at here is the section 125. And section 125 refers to not only your FSA, but something I find that's more obscure for our employers, which is your premium only plan. So your right. premium only plan is when the employer is deducting medical, dental, or vision premium pre-tax from a paycheck. You have a premium only plan if you're doing that, or you may have heard it referred to as a POP. That's part of a section 125. So just want to make sure that we're all on board and on the same page as to what is a section 125. It's the FSA and the POP, or both, if you yep. have both. Yep. Okay. Yep. So there's yeah, this Michelle, I think flexibility. Mm -hmm. Yep, and I think, Michelle, what, before you go through what they changed, I mean, I think it's good to have a perspective of what were they trying to address here, right? And, and you employers have been questioning because of the crisis, your employees have been put in a difficult situation. So the kind of things this is meant to address, right, are things like somebody put a bunch of money in their health FSA because they're going to get elective surgery. Now they can't get elective surgery because, you know, hospitals aren't accepting elective surgeries. Or or maybe somebody is under, you know, significant financial stress, so they want to switch from one plan to another. And so people are asking you folks to make changes that aren't normally allowed in the Section 125 rules. So what the IRS is trying to do here is, is give us more flexibility to let you let employees make some changes. So if you keep that, that um, in mind as Michelle goes through these changes, you'll see they're just trying to extend a little more flexibility when you can let people move stuff around or change stuff. Yes. So speaking of this flexibility, employers can choose to either limit the expanded election changes that were given via the IRS notices or 
you can choose not to adopt any of them. They are not automatic. Not automatic. So if you are an employer and you read this and you say, okay, I'm going I'm to let my employees enroll or drop or change however they want because the IRS says that I can. You have to adopt the change and also it would be prudent to notify your employees that you've adopted the change and what changes you have adopted. And so I want to say that up front. This is not automatic. You have to adopt, you have to formally adopt these changes. So for employer-sponsored coverage for the medical, dental, or vision, you know, I, I kind of look at these three bullet points, Bob, and I say, okay, well, it's essentially removed any necessity for qualifying events right. during this right. time period. Right. I mean, you really, again, you made an important point. You, employers don't have to do this, and they might not want to do every one of these. Let me give you an example I, I've heard a lot of is you may want, for example, to let employees enroll mid-plan year now, um, even if they don't have an event. Uh, by the way, be careful with that one because you got to work with Michelle and her team. If you're going to let people en enroll mid-plan year, the IRS says you can let them now, but that doesn't mean your carrier has to allow it. So just because we're allowed under Section 125 rules to allow a special mid-year enrollment here now, you got to coordinate with the carrier to uh, to assure that they're going to let you in, let let you let people in mid-plan year. I know carriers are being more flexible, but be very careful with that one. IRS is just saying what you can do here. That doesn't mean the carrier has to, to, to follow these, these rules. So my point, Michelle, on this one was going to be, you know, you said you're right. People can drop plans now. The IRS says you can let people drop plans now. And one of them is you can let people drop plans and go on to a different employer's plan, but they have to give you a written attestation. They have to certify to you that they're going on the other employer plan. I don't know about you, Michelle, but I'm a busy, if I'm an HR manager and I'm pretty busy, I don't know that I want to get into handling written certifications from every employee that tries to drop the plan. So to your point, I might choose to let employees drop or change benefits that I offer, but I don't, I'm not going to let employees drop coverage to enroll in somebody else's plan. To your point, Michelle, employers can pick and choose which of these they want to execute. They want to think about what works for them before they just say, oh, yes, I'm going to allow everything. Yes. I, yeah, I agree. And in fact, I have had several conversations with employers, and, and Bob, I know you have too, where the, dropping the coverage, that increased flexibility there where, where an employee can drop coverage prospectively as long as they attest in writing, um, to that other coverage. This is one where I've seen most employers say, no, I'm not comfortable okay. with that. It doesn't make sense. We're not going to yep. adopt this change. So I will say for, yep. for those on the line, this is what it appears from what I see, all the data I have as of yet, most employers are saying no to that one, but yes to some of the others. Yeah. Yep. I agree. Mm -hmm. And, and I, and I want to emphasize the note about the confirming with the carrier. I, I want to talk about that because I think it's, it's in a note that everyone needs to hear again, that the fact that the, the fact that some, the, the law gives you the right to have an optional, you know, election period, like in this situation, the carriers don't always have to say, oh, okay, we'll allow that as well. And I think there's a lot of confusion out there that the carriers, are are 
setting the rules. Like, oh, they're the ones who set these qualifying event rules, not the IRS. But it's actually the IRS sets rules and the the carriers, sometimes they set their own rules as well. And it can be very confusing. So the two always need to align. Whatever you're doing because of what the law states, you always want to make sure your carrier aligns with what you're doing. So great point about confirming with the carrier. I want to answer one question that that came in, and um, this allowance for changing elections does apply to dependent coverage. You could now, for example, let your employees switch from family to single or vice versa if you, under the Section 125 rules, you could allow that right now. Um, Again, to Michelle's point, if you're adding coverage, check with your carrier. Keep saying that 100 times. But yes, you could allow even changes to dependent coverage. And another question was, um, you know, we we still have all of the other qualifying events that have existed forever, right? If, you, if somebody gets married, you have to let them enroll. If somebody has a baby, you have to let them enroll. Nothing, none of those changed. You just need to, you just have the option now to be a little more flexible and, and let people make changes when they haven't had one of those events. Michelle, what are you hearing about the other one? We haven't talked about the health FSAs. The other one they gave us was we can let employees raise or lower or terminate their health FSA and DCAP elections. Um, that, that's an interesting one to me because if I let employees increase their health FSA election, they're going to submit more claims. That might be a good thing for them. But again, administratively, it's as, do you think employers are going to be interested in letting employees make changes to their, their health FSA elections? Is that going to be pretty popular? I think it will be. And I have seen this be popular. In fact, I spoke with an employer earlier this week who said, we're going to allow the flexibility under the FSA. We're going to adopt all of that flexibility, but we're not going to do it for the, the POP, for the premium-only plan, only the FSA. And I think mm-hmm. it makes sense as well because we're, because we're in the middle of a public health emergency. It certainly makes sense to decrease your elections because we can't go to the doctor for normal things during this time period. So we're not spending the money we may have thought or may have budgeted for and, and that is, depending on when your plan year starts or when it ends, this two or three or four, you know, however long it ends, if it, it keeps going, that those months are going to make a difference in what people budgeted for their health care expenses. So uh, for me, I think it makes, it makes a lot of sense to allow at least the decrease of existing FSA elections on the health FSA. Yeah, and we got two comments that I just want to recognize from people, Michelle, you know, you, know, you really got to weigh whether you want to do these or not, because this is this is going to be an extra administrative burden on the employers. It's a lot of work. You're busy. I mean, you're only going to open up these new options if you think it's really a benefit that you want to extend to your employees. I mean, if you're trying to do something to help out your employees and you think they'll appreciate that, then this you, you're going to consider this. But I, I mean, I'm going to go a little out on a limb here, but some of these changes, I don't know that that many employees are going to really care that much about. So you've got to weigh how much benefit you get, you know, helping your employees out with some of these changes versus the administrative work that, that you have to do to do them. Michelle, we got another question on the carryover. That, uh, you got a slide on that in just a minute we're going to go to. So we can, um, someone's asking about the difference between the carryover and what we're talking mm-hmm. here, but you have a slide in just a minute to talk about yeah. carryover. So we can address that when you get there. Um, the other confusion I hear a lot is there is also this new on the next slide you have. And again, I don't, if you, you can if you got more to talk about on this one, that's fine. But I want to make clear on the next time we're talking about, there's also a new opportunity you can let people incur claims for a longer period of time. That's a totally different rule. What we've been talking about so far is just letting people make differences in their elections. 
right? So the slide we had up there was letting people drop or add coverage or raise or lower the election or stuff like that. It has nothing to do with claims yet, okay? But then there's another one in the notice <laughs> where we could theoretically let people incur claims for a longer period of time. So I want to make a, a difference between those two. Right now we're just talking about elections. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you for making that distinction. I do. We do have a question here, and, and I see it a couple of times, a few different ways, so I want to address this as well. Uh, we have someone ask, uh, will the FSA contribution flexibly cause an admin nightmare? Well, Bob, <laughs> you said it. It's going to be, it's an additional burden. There's no doubt whether it's a nightmare might really depend on your current process and your current TPA. Um, you know, if your TPA is really with it and they're super helpful and you have electronic feeds set up, no, it may not be a nightmare, but it still will be a burden. We do recognize that. And we did talk about that. And then the questions as cutting employees checks for their FSA contributions already made and taxing that amount. I'm glad someone said this because we, sh we need to clarify again, these are prospective changes. There will not be, an FSA vendor will not be cutting an employee any check for amounts they already contributed. As an employee, I cannot go back and say, I've already paid in $500, but give me my $500 back. No. The election contribution amounts are on a go-forward basis. They cannot be retroactive. Yep. I hope I made Maybe we should address that. Maybe we should address that extended claim ones, too, because that's, that that's an that's an odd one compared to what we've been talking about, you know. So on the on, on the next slide you had was, and this is one I probably get more confusion about than anything. Okay, and that is this is just allowing certain. Let me back up a step. Normally, when you're on a health FSA or DCAP, you can only get claims reimbursed that were incurred during the plan year, or during that optional two and a half a month grace period if your plans have a grace period, right? So you have to incur the claim while you're on the plan or in the grace period. Mm -hmm. This is one where they're going to now, you could, if you had a non-calendar year plan, so if you have a plan that ends in July, you could let people incur claims until the end of the year and still apply it towards your plan year in July and use up your money from this plan year. So it only applies to non-calendar year plans, and it only applies to or the, a 2019 calendar year plan that had a grace period, so that, you know that ended in what was it, March 8, March 15th or whatever the grace periods ended. So if you're a calendar year plan 2020, this has nothing to do with you, okay? But if let's just pretend you're calendar, let's pretend you have a health FSA that ends July 1st. If you want, you could let people submit claims all the way to the end of December towards the plan year that ends June 30th. I don't know. I mean, this is one, again, great. A couple, might help a couple employees. This one, to me, seems a bit administratively like a bit of a circus, too. I, I'm wondering how much interest is that there's going to be in this one, Michelle. Do you have a sense of that yet? I agree with you. The complexity, it just, it, it's so, because of the fact that it's not just straightforward and intuitive and you have to do some thinking behind it and not only thinking behind it but you have to really apply apply yourself to say okay what does this mean um i what i am seeing is that employers are showing a lack of interest and mm. to me it's just because you know it doesn't yeah. make complete sense it's not intuitive it doesn't make complete sense um It'd be difficult so, to communicate yeah. 
difficult no. to exactly no. like if you can't communicate you know the whole goal is you want your employees to feel as if they're benefiting and if they can't right. understand what's happening then how then all you all we've done is introduce right. a level of complexity that didn't need to be there yeah. hey, hey we got a question i think is really important when you said it michelle but i'm going to say it in a different way you're talking about these poor people that have already made deductions for a while none of this can be retroactive michelle just said Everything's got to be proactive, or I mean prospective, going forward. So unfortunately, if somebody's already made three or four or five months of payroll deductions and it's in their DCAP or it's in their health FSA, there's nothing you can do about that. You can't give that money back. They could change, if you want them, they could change their deduction now going forward. And in this case, you know, here's a person that's struggling because their, their, their daycare is closed. I mean, you know... <laughs> Think about what this this crisis has done is change just access. I mean, what the two biggest things that close are schools, daycares, and and right in hotels and and resorts. None of them are open. I mean, I don't know about you, Michelle, but I think you've got a you've got a. I keep getting emails from this place called Half Moon Bay that's right down the street from you because I stayed there once and they're they're talking about when <laughs> when are they going to open again, right? <laughs> you know, so, right. You know, um, day, daycare providers um, being closed doesn't mean I can give these poor employees money back. They can reduce their election going forward, of course, but if they already put money away, we're kind of in a tough spot. Right, and, I, and it's worth it to point out that daycare closure was a significant change in cost. That has always been a qualifying event under the, change. the DCAP, the yeah. Dependent Care. And, and if I use this example, right, prospectively. I use this example uh, a couple weeks in a row for this podcast in that I, I have two children who are seven. So as soon as I sat down and thought about the changes I need to make, I emailed our HR department and said, I need to, I need to stop my, my DCAP contributions because my daycare closed. And HR said, okay. And then when, um, when the daycare reopens, then I can email HR again and say, okay, start them back up again. So that's a qualifying event that has already, that was already a part of the plan. A part of looking at some of these questions, Bob, before we sure. move forward. Yeah. Sure. I, and well, you, we did get a question. Before you go to the next one, oh, go, ahead. go yeah. ahead, Michelle. I was going to say, I, I did, we did get a question. Someone asked, can you now have a grace period and a rollover? And I think this is, I think this is something that, that is in, it's in the notice and that you can mm -hmm. have. It says it, you, it, you normally cannot have it, but now during this time period, you can have both. But I haven't heard anyone talk about it and not even – uh, the FSA TPAs. I've yet to hear them talk about it, but I've read the words in that notice. I and mean, yeah. Bob, do you have any thoughts on that? And and you may you may not know off the top of your head because I know this is so much information. But I remember in that notice it clearly states for this time period you can you can adopt both, but no one well, talked so think, about. It. Yeah. So so think about it. For I think what you're probably referring to is this for non-calendar year plans. They just kind of gave us a special end, end of year grace period, if you think about it that way, right? Normally the grace period is two and a half months after the plan year. Mm -hmm. And what they just did is they gave us essentially for non-calendar year plans a grace period until the end of the year. Because I can submit claims that are incurred until the end of the year. So it's like a fancy dancy big grace period. Okay? And those are, you are allowed to do that even at the same time on a plan that has the the $500 rollover provision. So I think that's what they're referring to is 
if I've got a $500 rollover provision in my plan, I still can take advantage of this if I want, letting people submit incur claims through the end of the year. Oh, you're okay. that yes, that makes perfect sense. So what they were really saying is you, you don't worry about your rollover. This right. big grace period we just gave everyone, you know, if you decide exactly. to adopt it, it's not gonna affect the fact that you have a rollover. Exactly. So in in effect, in effect you have both. You would have a grace period. Exactly. And a you do for the for this year. year. Exactly. Yep. yep. Perfect then. And it's only this year. Yeah. In fact, again, they're 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 really being nice to us, Michelle. They're giving us these perfect transitions to the next topic because you were going to mention the changes to the rollover on the next slide too. So yes, that's again, right. You're, that's right. You're, you're you're shifting gears now. This is a, a whole new change, but but they've also changed the rollover rules on it. That's right. So here here we go. We've we've got it up here. And this was actually in response to Trump's executive order that was back in June of last year. And it always kind of trips me up sometimes when I'm reading the notices or the new laws or the new regulations. And I just think, where did that come from? So they, they mm. took it from 500 to 550. And in my brain, I immediately thought, wow, that, that's not much. <laughs> so mm. uh, I like to know, like, where, why did they think that 50 bucks was going to be all that helpful? And why wasn't it more? Um, so, you know, I guess they're trying. And so what they did was beginning with this, per, this plan year, 2020, the carryover is now calculated can now be 20% of the annual health FSA contribution limit. So this was their way of, of listening to Trump and saying, okay, we heard you, you asked us to, to do something about it. And, and we did. And now it's going to be 20% of the annual health FSA contribution limit, the carryover limit. And that's a pretty, you know, and that's a pretty straightforward change. I don't think we need to go much into this. I bet you most employers that have carryover on their FSAs are going to update it to now have the new number every year, right? Why not? Let's let our employees carry right. over as, as, as much as we can. Um, yeah. I want to tackle a couple of the questions here before we move on. Um, uh, this is a big one that we didn't address is somebody did ask about uh, making plan document changes. All of the changes to your health FSA that we've talked about so far, you know, would require an amendment to your plan, but the IRS gave us a real flexible way to do that. We don't have to amend our plans until, listen to this, sometime before December 31st, 2021. I said the year right, a year and a half from now. Um, and those amendments can be retroactive back to the beginning of this year. Now, Michelle, you said it earlier, you have to tell your employees you're making these changes or what's the point in making the change. But that's just a general, you know, communication thing. You don't actually have to do your formal plan amendments till the end of 2021 and then make, make them retroactive this year. So put it on your to-do list next year for your plan amendments when things calm down a little bit <laughs> and focus on your employee communications right now. <laughs> Right, right. I, the one thing I do, one issue I see with putting it on the agenda is that the FSA administrators are, are, are saying you need to tell us what you want. So you do have to notify them. And then your FSA administrator will issue an amendment. But you don't have to, like Bob said, worry about it next spring. You don't have to immediately forward that amendment over to your plan participants to be compliant. You can wait until all the way until the, the end of 2021. Yes. Um, we had a question here. Can a plan have a grace period for dependent care funds for those that contributed but can't use the funds for this year? Grace period. No, so that no, I think they're mixing up the dependent care with the um, with 
I say there's a regular grace period, but if it's mm -hmm. a non-calendar year plan, what we just said is you can let them submit claims through the end of 2020. So this is our special emergency one-time grace period, if you want to call it that, right? So if that's what they're asking about, yeah, if you've got a dependent care plan that ends in September or June or something, you could let people have dependent care expenses incurred all the way through the end of this year to use up that plan your money this year. But but there's not a regular grace period we can add to dependent care plans, you know, in the future. Right. And I just want to note that if you are if you just heard that and you say, okay, I want to, to, to adopt that extended grace period that goes to the end of this year then contact your FSA administrator. They yes. need to know what you're doing. Yes. They need to know what you're doing. <laughs> uh, it's not automatic at all. So please, please do remember that. Yeah, that, yeah, good point. Should we, uh, do, are we gonna, are we gonna have, are we gonna have to tell them the good news about COBRA stuff before we get, not run out of time here? This yes, is, uh, yes, we need to be mindful of time. Thank you, Bob. I just looked at the clock and I thought, wow, I. It, yeah. You know, we're nerds. We're we're nerds about this stuff. So it's like we talk an hour and we think it's fascinating, but we just we spent probably a good thirty five, forty minutes on this topic. So let's let's um yeah. be mindful of time. Let's move on to talking about extended COVID deadlines. So scary. It is a little scary. So the there are extended COBRA deadlines, and, and I hope that this is not news to you. Um, for Bolton, we sent out a compliance alert to anyone that's notified that's on our distribution list, and we also wrote a blog about this. And our Bolton client managers also connected with our with our employer groups. So this shouldn't be new, but we want to talk about it just just for a couple moments. The extended deadlines require employers to discard the outbreak period when applying normal deadlines for COBRA, which include the COBRA notices, the COBRA elections, and here's a big one, the COBRA payment deadline. Mm. The outbreak period is from March 1st until 60 days after the national emergency is over, but we don't know when that will be. So if you were to come to us and say, tell us the date that, you know, what's the, what's this new normal deadline for COBRA payments? You know, what's the grace period or the extended deadline? we wouldn't be able to tell you because we don't know when the national emergency expires yet. We just know it's going to be until 60 days after. That's a little yeah, tough. That, that outbreak period is a re yeah, that outbreak period is a really important concept that I think people are still struggling with, right? Um, I think one of the things that confused people is if they looked at the regulations the IRS issued, those regulations came out late in April. I think it was April 27th, something like that. And in the examples, they listed the national emergency declared over April 30th. Well, come on guys. I mean, we, we knew the emergency was not gonna be over April 30th when they issued the regulations April 27th. So it was a really stupid date to use for the examples. You know, we, the, the national emergency may not be, yeah, it may not be declared over till end of June, end of July. I don't, you don't know yet. And so you don't know when this outbreak period is going to be over until the federal government decides to declare the national emergency over in the next month or two months or three months or four months or whatever the, you know what it is. So this is a really confusing concept. These, these deadlines are, are suspended for some period of time, but we don't know how long yet. 
I love your point about April 30th. Like that, that was, that was it's so dumb. It's, you put these dates yeah. in our head and they're not even close to being realistic. Um, I, I guess you got to get a laugh out of this when you can. Laugh instead of cry. Um, I got, we got a couple questions here and which starts a good discussion. So, so I want to look at this. Uh, with regard to these extended COBRA deadlines, someone said, how do we tell or what, what do we tell our terminating employees about these COBRA deadlines? The follow-up question is, if we have a TPA for COBRA, will they communicate this information? Well, uh-huh. there's currently, I should, I guess we could start off here, here, Bob. There's no requirement that the employer, none that I could see, that the employer has to notify a COBRA participant that they have all this extra time. That's correct. Okay. Um. <laughs> Well, so let me let me, com- let me comment on that one quickly. Then, Michelle, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. The, 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 there is no specific requirement for changing our election notices, changing our our, our notices we give under COBRA. Um, but uh, you know, there are some times when, as an employer, I think it's in my best interest. And there's also a little bit of risk um, that if we don't at least share the correct information, could we, put, could we be putting ourselves in a position where we're gonna have some liability later because an employer says that they weren't, employee says that they weren't notified properly. I'm gonna share something with you that I'm, uh, it's, it's, it's indicative of the, of, of the world we're living on. We, we, I read two specific alerts by very large, very respected national law firms. I'm not gonna name names, but these are names that some of you would even recognize, okay? And they were they were talking about whether we should put these new deadlines and delays into our COBRA notices. And the two law firms took polar opposite positions. One was saying there's no requirement, just as long as you administer it properly, there's no reason you should change any notices or tell people about any of these extensions. The other law firm took the exact opposite approach and strongly recommended adding this information to the notices, afraid that if you don't, someone will be able to sue you later because you didn't tell them. I tell you this because people smarter than I and thinking about this a lot harder than I still can't agree on what to do about these notices. So here's where I land, Michelle, and I want to be able to do what you say is, if you can, mm-hmm. it's always better to tell participants more, right? I mean, that's just, that's just we're, we're all in human resource and benefits. So, you know, notifying people and communicating with participants to the best that you can is just good general advice, right? It's not legal, it's just general advice. But this mm-hmm. isn't so easy. Maybe you're not sending the COBRA notice. You said yourself, Michelle, tell what one of the COBRA administrators told you. I mean, if you're using a COBRA administrator, yeah. you're not sending any of these notices. The, admin- the administrator is sending them out, so you can't necessarily change them the way you want them changed. Yes, yeah, and I mean, speaking to that, so we did talk to a, a one of the COBRA administrators that that uh, we have worked with and, and still do work with, and we said, okay, what you, what are you going to do? How are you going to respond? How are you helping our employers? And they said, we're not doing anything. We're making no changes to our letters, no changes to our process, no changes to our termination process, and what we'll do is we'll just look at it on a case-by-case basis. And I will say, so I, I, I was struck with fear for our employers. Oh, my God, mm-hmm. you're, 
you you just you're mm-hmm. adding a level of viability onto our employers by just essentially ignoring and do it on a case by case basis. But the more we sat and we talked about it and we talked about it, the end of it at the, at the end of it, we just said this is a rock in a hard place. It is yeah. very difficult to know what to do. And Bob, your example of two law firms having two different two polar opposite thought process on this that is yeah. that could not be yeah. a, a better example of how this is this is not clear it's not clear yeah. on what to do yeah and susan sent a note in saying you know this is i'm confused should we tell them or not um and join the club susan this what's happened here is the department of labor and the irs have given us a rule that says we have to extend all these things with no guidance whatsoever on what, what kind of communication requirements there are. So it, it, there are times, unfortunately, in our business where we have to say, um, you know, make your best choice you can make based on your administrative capabilities, but there is not a clear answer I can give you in terms of how, how to notify us. Now, I do want to say one thing. I think there's some confusion out there. This doesn't just apply to premium payments. Michelle, if you'd put that last slide back up there. This also applies to COBRA notices. If you have someone, if you terminate someone today and you give them a COBRA notice, normally it says they have 60 days from when you give the notice or the loss of coverage date, right? That's how COBRA's worked for 30 years. Now, if you give someone a COBRA notice today, they technically have 60 days from the end of the outbreak period to elect COBRA. So let's just say it's a COBRA note, a COBRA uh, event today with coverage ending the end of May. October would be effective June 1st. What if the outbreak period doesn't end until the end of July? Well, let's see, end of July, then two months after that. I'm sorry, what if the national emergency doesn't end until the end of July? Then the outbreak period is August, September, end of September. And then they've got 60 days to elect coverage. Let's see, that's October and November. That means somebody that had a COBRA event today can elect their COBRA at the end of November to be back effective to June 1st. So. <laughs> it is mind boggling. Someone said this, but it is mind boggling. Yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> so anyway. That's right. Uh, we got, That's right. Uh, I'll let you, I, 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 I need to let you get to the rest of your material. I'll, I'll keep my mouth shut here for a minute. Um, uh, uh, I'll let you finish the last couple slides you have so, so we don't keep people on too long here. Right, right. I, I agree. I'll, I, I do I do want to say, because I, I like to kind of close things up and put a little bow on top of them. Um, it, it, if, you're say, if you're frustrated because you did not hear a clear path with regards <laughs> to this, I, I, I want to extend my apologies. I know how frustrating that is. But there is no clear path. It is what is best for you and your organization working with your advocates, whether that is the Bolton team or if you're with another broker, that team as well. And so you are right. There is not a clear path. You need to do what we're going to have to do the best that we can for your situation. And can okay. I, maybe I can, let, let's give them one piece of good mm-hmm. news, okay? Okay. The, the, okay? the nightmare scenario I just gave you, that somebody elects COBRA November 30th for effective date back to June 1st, that's going to happen to some of you, okay? I'm not worried about carriers accepting that. I believe that carriers are required to offer coverage for anyone who elects within the time frames required by the law, okay? So I believe that if you have people with, that have a COBRA event today, and don't elect until November 30th, in my example, we don't know when the hell the date is actually going to be, but in my example, 
that those carriers will offer to let the retroactive coverage be added. So I just want to give people one, take one small stress off the off their plate. So, all right. Yeah, thank you for that, Bob. <laughs> all right, want to be mindful of time. Um, if you have to jump off, we, we totally understand. Uh, and feel free, you'll get a recording link, but also you'll be able to download this podcast from iTunes. It'll come out probably Tuesday of next week. But you will get a recording link if you do need to drop off, so feel free to do that. Otherwise, feel free to stay on the line, and we'll finish up these last few slides as quickly as possible. Okay, so toilet paper talk, this is generally, this is usually my favorite segment. Um, relevant issues from last week. It, it's where I, we just kind of have a conversation about what are we hearing, what are employers worried about, because it helps give you a little bit of comfort and maybe that, you know, misery loves company. Maybe we look at that, look at it from that standpoint. <laughs> um, just some perspective of what we are hearing from employers. Obviously, adopting these Section 125 increased flexibility. Employers are contemplating on what they should do, if anything. So that's been a big topic. Notifying employees of the COVID-19 related changes. And uh, we're starting to hear from employers saying, uh, who are starting to get it. Like, yes, you do know, need to notify your employees. You don't have to issue a plan amendment. You don't have to do anything formal as of yet because we do have relaxed timelines for that. But employees need to be notified of, of related changes that impact them, of course. The last two bullet points in today's talk, we don't have a lot, we don't have anything to say about these other than to say that uh, uh, we're seeing more COVID-19 in the workplace, so employers are having to deal with what do I do, what protocols are in place, who do I have to tell, do I need to worry about HIPAA, you know, all the questions that come up with that. That is, of course, more common because it's been around for a longer time, so it, we're, we're seeing greater numbers. So that is a concern. Mm -hmm. That's an, we, we look at that as, you know, that's an employment matter, and, and we're benefit related or benefit experts. So there is a, a line there. And that's why I've had guest speakers on actually the la the prior two episodes, I've had Nicole Cam, who is an employment attorney, and she went into this in depth, as, and as well as returning to work. So that's a big issue as well. How do I provide a safe environment? What if someone doesn't want to return to work? But these are not issues that fall under the benefits umbrella. So we won't be discussing them today. Here's some resources for you. If you haven't seen this before, the blog, the boltingco.com blog, you can go there and learn more about premium credits as well, as well as how to slice and dice it. Um, we give instructions on how to do that. And uh, let's see, Think HR, if you're a Bolton client or you have access to Think HR, they've got a lot of good sample communication pieces, return to work, FFCR leave request form, et cetera. Employment matters. You can visit FisherPhillips.com. That's where Nicole Cam, my prior guest speaker, that's where she works. They have a fantastic public resource with lots of facts and even templates. They have a CCPA authorization or um, supported template there for disclosing COVID diagnosis. They have manager talking points, sample employee symptom questionnaire, they, back to business checklist. They have so much there. So I encourage you to reach out and, and look at their website. Yeah. 
And our guide is whispering. Oh. I cre- Bob, I created this all the way back from our first discussion, and look right. how, many, uh, how much guidance right. we have. I mean, I don't. Right. It's not like there's been a ton, but there there could be more. No, no, but they're so, start, they're addressing more. I, I I agree with you. They're they're starting to address it, and I and the one that's not addressed there is is very relevant. We're getting lots of questions about. You know, people have been laid off, furloughed, all those kind of things. What's that going to mean to their full-time employee status next year? You need to start thinking about that already. We're going to be looking at, you know, not too not too long from now, we're going to be having employers putting plans together for their January 1st, you know, plan year next year. And how is everything that's happened this year going to affect people's eligibility? So to your point, Michelle, nothing, nothing from the IRS yet on anything related to full-time status or or employer penalties or anything, um, you know, maybe we'll see something this year. I, I, I don't know. The other one on this slide that I'm watching really closely are these COBRA subsidy proposals. Um, this, this, this would be really interesting. There's now three different proposals in Congress for some kind of COBRA subsidy to let people that have lost their employer plans stay on the plans and the federal government would help pay for some or all of their COBRA. So we yeah watch that one carefully because I'll guarantee you that that will have some administrative issues for employers to deal with. However that however that may come out. Right, the devil in the details there. Someone made a comment or asked them for Cobra, the employer pays premiums through all various extension scenarios. Question mark. And mm. yes, question mark. Mm. <laughs> Um, it is. Yeah, that that's a good that's a good one. We didn't really raise that one. You know, the, the problem is different carriers are going to handle this differently, right? So, Michelle, you said it, that we can't terminate someone's COBRA for non-payment right now. Does that mean we have to still keep paying the carrier or will the carrier just kind of waive the premiums for that, those folks until, you know, the end of the outbreak period? Um, I don't, I think carriers are scratching their head right now trying to figure out how to handle this. You know, at the end of the day, it's just really important that if someone doesn't pay us by the grace period, we're able to either keep them on the plan. Maybe we can pen the claims if we can do that. That's okay. Um, and then make sure that they've got coverage if they pay. But again, our hearts go out to you. Um, this, these, these extensions were done with the best of intentions, I'm sure. The, the regulators just want to give people more flexibility, but they've created situations for us administratively that just are not easy to answer. So wish we could, you said it, Michelle, I'll repeat it again. I wish we could give you a more straightforward answer. It's work hard with Michelle and her team and the carriers to try to do your best and make sure people don't get canceled or lose their coverage that shouldn't. That, that's right. And, and you know, uh, the DOL, uh, they are feeling the pressure from employers and, and their advocates on pro- providing some facts for us because uh, so many employers are asking the same question. Wait, who needs to pay for it? Who's on the hook? Who is ultimately responsible for this COBRA premium that's not being paid? And we had we had one last comment. Someone said, well, I thought the carriers could technically term them without payment. Of course they can. What law states that they can't? So the answer to that mm-hmm. is yes. I And so the thought is, well, the employer is then on the hook. But then again, we have to say, well, what law states that the employer has to pay a COBRA premium? There's no law out mm-hmm. there that says that. So so why would the employer be on the hook? You could make an argument because we don't have enough clarity. We could argue a lot of that, a lot of that. And, and, and there's just no answer it is, yes, a mess. <laughs> and I'll, and I'll, my, my final comment is I think, I think what, I'll, again, I want to maybe end on a, on a, a positive note. Yep. I believe 
that the carriers are going to be flexible as we clean some of these things later up. Somebody's going to have gotten canceled by mistake. They're going to send the money in three or four months from now. And I believe that for the most part, if there's a documentation, they had a COBRA event, we got the money and things like that. I honestly believe that, if, you know, that the risk is relatively low because I think carriers will help us clean those things up and get those people the coverage. It's going to be a lot of work and administratively a hassle, but I'm less, and, and, that, and, I, and I apologize for that, but there, why am I apologizing for that, Michelle? We didn't get this stuff. Um, <laughs> no, we did not. No, we did not. <laughs> um, but, but I'm less worried about somebody not getting covered. I think if, we, if, we, if we've got the documentation and stuff that the carriers are going to step up and get the people covered, it's just going to be a, a hassle cleaning these things up. So silver lining, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, lo I love that you add that because you're right. If we look at this and we get too in the details, we get frustrated. But if we do what if we work together with our carriers and, and, and TPAs and we, we the end goal is to do right by the employer or excuse me, right. the employee. And I think right. it's the way it shakes out. It will that will be able to happen. But as we're muddling through the beginning of this. It's very frustrating, but you're, that silver lining, I think you're, you're spot on. We're all going to work together to, to make sure the employee is not harmed at the end of the day and that we're following all the rules. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a lot of information. I'm glad everyone joined us today. <laughs> a lot of clarity. We gave a lot of clarity and then um, everything else was clear as mud, but we <laughs> appreciate <laughs> everyone on the line. Bob, thank you for joining us. We thanks, love Thanks having for having you. me again, Michelle. Yes, of course. All right. Thanks, everyone.